Welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Jim Marty reporting from my barn, uh, easing off lockdown here in beautiful Colorado. And I have my partner, Larry Miskin, up in Chicago, where they're still pretty much shut down. Larry, how you doing? Jim, always a pleasure to hear from you. We have the sun today. It's actually uh, raining this morning, but nice and, and warm this afternoon. So we're very excited about that. Um, and uh, doing just fine, thank you. We are uh, we are still on lockdown at the moment, although there's uh, things happening all over the place that are changing it as we speak. And uh, uh, like we talked about last time, though, the one thing that I think everybody can say about this lockdown is, boy, has it been a real shot in the arm for the uh, marijuana industry. We we had record sales here. I know you were telling me you guys had record sales in Colorado. I just think it's wonderful that people can say whatever the heck they want to say about the coronavirus. But the one thing we all know is what a what a great impact it's had on uh, on the legal marijuana market. Yes, um, it was just the April sales just came out for Colorado, and even without our national marijuana holiday of 420, the April sales of this year exceeded 2019. So you know, Larry, you and I do a lot of work in the uh, licensing and investment area of the cannabis industry. And it, I've been using the term bulletproof that cannabis turns out to be a very bulletproof industry as the, as the virus epidemic has shown us. And for investors, it's actually coming up as a flight to safety. Uh, we've been very, very busy with mergers and acquisitions and people who want to get into the industry and, real estate that's looking for um, operators to come in. Um, I understand uh, you've had a good workload there with uh, Hoban Law. Yeah, Jim, we did. And it, it's um, it's been tremendous. Well, first of all, I was very busy because we had all the licensing going on. But, you know, as you were talking just now, you know, what really got me thinking is the thing that got me into the whole cannabis uh, industry in the first place was back in 2013, um, Illinois, at least, was still mired as deep as any state, I want to say, um, in the economic downturn that had happened, and we were still really struggling as a state to, to find our way out. And as a uh, you know relatively you know general practice business attorney, um, it had greatly impacted my practice, and, and the, uh, uh, the the lack of business, uh, substantive business, was you know beginning to take its toll. And really, you know, call it a gift from heaven or whatever you want. In August of 2013, out of nowhere, they passed the Medical Cannabis Act. And when they did, all of these clients of mine who had disappeared all of a sudden showed up at my door. They were going to make it in the cannabis industry, and they wanted to know about the cannabis industry. And that's what lifted me up and got me out to Seattle in November of 2013 to that second MJ Biz conference, which is when I met you. And, you know, I would like to think that marijuana – was a real driver 
that helped bring us out of the, the real depths of that market downturn. And if it can do it again this time, right, and, and really be a guiding light for people as we all get back to normal and you know we have this to really help keep us going forward i think it's a great thing you know speaking of illinois there's been a lot on the news about your governor um, and his shutdown and lockdown in illinois being too heavy-handed and people are are, a lot of small business owners uh, outside of cannabis are, are pushing to reopen can you give us an update of what's going on politically up there in illinois I can. And, you know, it, it's an interesting topic because it, it really speaks to everything that happens in Illinois, including cannabis legislation. And, and you know, we have a saying in Illinois that we have two states. It all depends whether you're north or south of Interstate 80, which bisects the state just about uh, 50 miles south of Chicago. Um, and what I mean by that is when you're north of I-80 and you're in the Chicago metropolitan area, you're in a major metropolitan area, one of the largest ones in the country with all the population and population density and everything that goes on with it. But as soon as you drop below Interstate 80 and the farther south you head, Illinois becomes a very, very rural state. Not that much different, I would say, than Colorado, except we don't have all the ski resorts in between. Um, but, uh, you know, so you're really dealing with two completely different sets of circumstances and rules that make sense in a city like Chicago don't necessarily make sense in the smaller towns in the central and southern part of the state. And so Pritzker has been getting a lot of pushback on that, um, you know, which is interesting because I think that overall uh, his policies have been very, very popular. Um, you know, he, he, he really helped Illinois, uh, or at least, you know, to the extent we can say he did, uh, when we were really looking like we were going to go through the roof in terms of uh, the number of cases and really help flatten that out. Um, but I certainly understand the difficulty uh, in balancing the health safety versus a lot of these people who say, look, I may still be alive, but if I don't have a business, what the heck? And one of the things that Pritzker's looking into do, and I think it's, it's somewhat unique as far as I can tell, is his initial proposal that he's setting out for people to look at is he wants to divide the state into four separate zones, geographic zones. And he will have the same general rules apply to each zone in terms of how quickly they can bounce back. But, you know, zone zone four, if it meets those qualifications, can reopen even if zone three and zone two have it. And if he can really pull this off and make it work, and, you know, that remains to be seen, um, I really like that approach because I am the first to agree that although we still may need a little more uh, protection up here in the Chicagoland area, you know, folks who live down in Marion, Illinois, and I've got clients who are down in that part of the state, you know, they can drive miles and miles before they bump into anybody. Um, you know, and if they need to be able to go to a store, they should be able to go to a store. So I kind of like that approach uh, that, you know, you have a something other than a one size fits all for a state that certainly has a lot of different sizes. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. I, I think, you know, the logical thing to do is to go county by county or like you were just talking about zones, you know, because uh, there's many counties across the United States with zero COVID-19 deaths. And they're saying, you know, why should we lock down our businesses? We've had zero deaths. Um, so a little more politics um, you know, here in Colorado, I give our Democratic governor, Jared Polis, who's actually a, a personal friend of mine, um, I give him credit. He started easing our lockdown at, on April 27th. 
And um, so I was out and about today. There's many retail stores open. I have an appointment to get a haircut on Saturday. And on our western side, where there's been, like I said, counties with zero deaths, uh, the restaurants and bars in Grand Junction uh, are starting to reopen. Uh, some of them are doing outdoor service only, but at least you can go to a, a bar and a restaurant. And uh, we see that trend coming across Colorado. I think we'll have bars and restaurants. And again, maybe with just outdoor service, which in the beautiful month of May is just fine um, to have outdoor service at bars and restaurants. So we look forward to that coming. Uh, but back to our governor, Jared Poulos, um, he was invited to Washington and he had a very cordial meeting yesterday with uh, President Trump and our Republican Senator Cory Gardner. And um, there was a very good banter back and forth between Jared Polis and President Trump. And Trump uh, complimented him on the a great job he's doing on reopening and, you know, the shutdown initially and then the reopening here in Colorado. And the exciting piece of news for me was uh, during that back and forth banter, uh, our Governor Polis said that, uh, you know, some of our ski areas can stay open till the 4th of July. So there's a chance that we may have Arapahoe Basin, where I volunteer, open in June, which, as I've said before, one of my biggest disappointments of the shutdown, besides our son Jack not having commencement from the University of Colorado, is that I haven't been able to ski in May. You know, there's five Saturdays this May, and I would ski every Saturday if, this, if a basin was open. So hopefully uh, in a few weeks I'll be back skiing again to finish the season. Well, that's that's um, I think that's great, and uh, uh, you know, the more uh, bipartisanship that we can see be displayed among our national leaders uh, during this period of time can only be a benefit for the country, you know. And if people see uh, that level of cooperation and uh, uh, complimentary uh, statements going back and forth, you know, the hope is that that makes its way down to every level, and that uh, you know we really uh, work together on this thing in terms of overcoming it, as opposed to letting it become. Uh, you know, an issue that might be otherwise determined by uh, politics or factors that, while very important in our lives, may not always provide the best guideposts in terms of how to deal with something like this. So that's positive news, Jim, and I'm glad to hear that. Um, you know, we're, we're, like I say, uh, uh, things here are going very well, and it's just wonderful to see that uh, throughout all of this where the uh, cannabis industry has gone and, and the position that it's taking um, and, you know, hey, listen, if I was Cory Gardner and if I was the governor of Colorado and I saw what my state had the ability to generate, I'd be in Washington, D.C. talking to President Trump as well, because the more we can get the feds on our side with something like this, the better it's going to be for everybody. And uh, I think that's a great thing. I will uh, also share in your um, uh, in your statement that we, we and our family also uh, have a similar uh, type of unfortunate loss, if you will, not a personal loss, but an opportunity loss. My youngest uh, today is his final day of high school. Uh, so, if, you know, I'm finally, my joke is after however many years it's been, I no longer have children uh, in the uh, local public school system. And, uh, you know, while we're all very excited and very proud of him and, and all the accomplishments that he's had, um, you know, I, I certainly remember my senior year of high school and, uh, you know, the part that hasn't totally fogged over recalls uh, senior prom and senior ditch day and uh, all the parties that people had and, you know, including the big parties after prom and after graduation. And it's, uh, it's disappointing, uh, you know, that our children don't get to have those same experiences 
but at the same time, I think it's somewhat amazing uh, that they still have a graduation and that now, uh, for instance, my father, who's in St. Louis and really isn't up to doing a lot of traveling these days, will be able to watch his son, his grandson graduate from high school uh, via official Zoom production, however they're doing it. And uh, so that's very nice. You know, we're very happy about that. But it, 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 it doesn't make up for the lost or missed life opportunity that all of us just took for granted. Um, and that's really the unfortunate thing that there's just no way to, to ever get those opportunities back for anybody. Um, and then the other thing that you said that I, I, I certainly agree with is, you know, the idea that it's great to start getting out. It's great to start uh, going back into small businesses, especially and giving them a chance uh, to, to make their way back and to survive. Um, and what I think that it speaks to is, you know, we'll finally see uh, and have an opportunity to view um, everybody in society really, you know, like everybody says, hey, look, you know, people are smart and people can figure this out. And the hope is that people will figure it out. And you know what? If it means that you're going to go to a restaurant and every other table is going to be shut down for a while, I can live with that. And I think it's smart. It's smart happenings. The things that make me nervous, and I hate to sound like the old guy in the room when I say this, those damn kids on my lawn again kind of thing. But, they, you know, they, they the, uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned or, or rejected the uh, the governor's shutdown order, um, and you know without getting into any of that, the, the bottom line was that the bars could reopen, and so of course you know all the news was focused on three or four bars just on the other side of the Wisconsin Illinois border that not only had the benefit of Wisconsinites but Illinois people driving across the border to take take advantage of the open bar, and that's what makes me nervous when you have an open business but you see everybody in there packed shoulder to shoulder. Um, you know, and it'd be nice to see in those types of situations, people using a little bit better judgment, but, you know, again, far be it for me to tell anybody what kind of risks to take. And, um, you know, if people survive and the economy goes forward, then I guess it's all good. Well, the good news as we sit here today is that the, the death count in virtually every state is on the decline. So I think we'll get back to normal sooner than later, but we'll see what happens. It does appear there will be no large gatherings, uh, in 2020. Um, so that puts the kibosh on a lot of concerts, festivals, um, a lot of the marijuana conferences. Um, it looks like uh, New Orleans in um, late August is not going to happen. Um, it's quite obvious that, or not quite obvious, but likely that Las Vegas in December will not happen for MJ BizCon. So we'll still be, you know, dealing with the uh, epidemic, you know, as we you know, go forward. But, yeah, a couple last um, – well, one last personal thing that uh, what the kids did over at CU Boulder who were graduating, my son Jack and all his friends, they had a porch commencement, and it made CBS News. Uh, our son Jack did the sound, and uh, these uh, seven girls, young ladies, um, who all lived together in a house on the hill in Boulder by the campus – uh, they did the whole bit. They tossed their caps in the air. They had caps and gowns. Uh, they popped champagne and sprayed it all over each other, and they called it a porch commencement. Love that. That's a great idea. That's a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah, very in nice, fact, uh, that's so funny. I can tell you, when we graduated from uh, the University of Michigan in 1984, the house that I was living in at the time just happened to be located on an intersection where the street which led you from campus to the football stadium uh, dead-ended and made a, a T intersection right in front of our front door. And, uh, you know, graduations at Michigan are all fine, but you're in the football stadium with 35,000 people. 
Uh, so, you know, who the hell knows what's going on on any level. And a couple of my roommates took it upon themselves to leave graduation early, get back down to the house. And then not just as, as my family and I, but literally, you know, 40,000 people went walking down this one street to get back to central campus. They had to walk past our house and our porch. And they had, uh, the roommates had taken a big, huge bed spread and put it up uh, on the front porch saying what a long, strange trip it's been. And, you know, with the appropriate logos and everything else on there. So it made for quite the sight, uh, you know, for people coming back from graduation. Excellent. Well, a couple little more uh, political things going on. Um, there's been some cannabis legislation introduced in the United States Congress. The latest 300 trillion, was it 300? I guess it's 300 billion dollar bill that the uh, Democrats have put forward in the House contains uh, access to the Paycheck Protection Program for cannabis companies, as well as the Safe and the Safe Banking Act is is part of that bill as well. So that has gotten some negative publicity. That you know, why are we supporting marijuana companies in the middle of this pandemic? Um, so we'll see uh, what survives in this latest round. What the Republicans want, I, I'm sure Democrats do too, is um, immunity from lawsuits related to COVID as the economy opens up. So certainly my, my firm, with our parent company, you know, we're over 100 people. Um, we've put out a policy that we think is good for reopening. Um, but yes, we, you know, certainly any employer has liability concerns as we reopen that if someone does come down with C-19, that uh, the employer is not open to a lawsuit. Um, I think, you know, built into our existing legal system are exceptions for lawsuits for things like pandemics. Um, Larry, as a lawyer, do you have any comment on pandemics being exempt from lawsuits? Well, you know, this is going to be, I was just going to say that, uh, um, you and I had been talking before we uh, we started taping today and and commenting on the fact that even with the uh, the passing now of the uh, final filing deadline for all the uh, marijuana applications and everything, uh, that my practice has remained very very busy and and one of the reasons is uh, because of the impact uh, the coronavirus is having on day to day business and the litigation that potentially spills off of that, right? If I'm a restaurant and I'm not doing any business because I'm shut down by the state, but I've got a standing order with a food supply company to buy a certain amount of food, but I don't need that food right now. What do I do? Um, you know, and so while as, as an attorney, I can certainly appreciate uh, the opportunity to have the business. Uh, you know, I can also say that it gives me a view, which is that it's going to take a while for us to kind of, you know, dig ourselves out of this. The, and, and what you ask there, Jim, is very key. Every every business contract of any kind always has a clause in there that we call a force majeure clause or an act of God clause, right? That says, I'm supposed to deliver 100 widgets to you, but, you know, if there's a war and the Russians blow up my factory, it's not my fault. Or if there's a flood or a tornado and my factory gets destroyed, I'm not in breach of contract. You have to forgive me in that circumstance because of what's happened. One of the hot questions that's going around in legal circles right now, because every contract has a force majeure clause, but it typically tends to be boilerplate and not the kind of thing that people really pay any attention to. It's just there, we put it in there, and that's fine. Well, guess what? All of a sudden, everybody's turning to their force majeure clauses and taking a look to see whether or not a pandemic 
is considered an act of God and covered by it. And the truth is, most of the clauses don't get that specific because this is not something that's necessarily been on our radar screen before in terms of protections uh, that we want to protect against. You know, I can certainly see making an argument that a pandemic that's viral-based is an act of God, uh, but I can also see people arguing if you wanted it to be in there, you should have put it in there. Um, and, you know, how the courts are going to ultimately rule on all of those issues uh, you know, really remains to be seen. But what I can tell you is that anything that happens in my you know, real world or, you know, as I like to call it, non-cannabis practice immediately has implications in the cannabis practice because cannabis is nothing other than business. So all cannabis contracts have force majeure clauses in them, right? So if, you know, if, you're, a, if you're a cultivator right now, but your whole workforce got sick and you weren't able to produce at the level you wanted to produce for the dispensaries that are counting on your product, what kind of liability do we have? And then, Jim, as you were hinting at, there's yet another question, which is, if I bring my employees back to work and they get sick, do I as an employer have liability? If customers come onto my shopping premises to shop and as a result contract the virus, as the property owner who invited people onto my property so I could make a profit off of them, do I have liability for that. And the truth is, a lot of these cases, we don't know the answers yet. And it's going to be, you know, there's right. going to be a few test cases that are going to go out there and we'll see how the courts rule and, and we'll get a general idea of what's going on. But, you know, I, I guess the, the good thing about a litigator is we can argue either side of the coin if we have to. Um, it's just a matter of trying to find a way that will resolve it, you know, fairly and in a uniform fashion, which is always the hallmark of contract law that we have to have consistent uniform yep. decisions in order to have a workable system. Yep, and then the right place uh, for that as it relates specifically to this pandemic is with the United States House of Representatives, the Senate, and ultimately a bill signed into law by the president. So, um, well, I think that's enough politics for one day. It's certainly not dull. Let's move on to some music. We don't have a lot of shows. As I mentioned, I don't think we're going to have a lot of shows for the rest of uh, 2020. But, uh, you know, Fish did say the 2020 tickets for their summer tour would be good in 2021. So I see everybody's eyes shifting now to 2021 and make sure we can get back to a touring schedule, get back to Red Rocks and the other great venues and sheds across America. Uh, I think we'll all have a much deeper appreciation for uh, what is the one I always teach my sons in our Bill of Rights, the one that everyone forgets. Oh, yeah, the right to peaceable assembly. Exactly, and listen to some good music. And that's really true. And, it, you know, it, it, without really even thinking about it, we've all, you know, we take certain things for granted as signs of summer, baseball games, uh, you know, uh, summer tours from our favorite jam bands and, and other stuff like that. And as soon as we, as soon as it's taken away, uh, you know, you, you really notice it and, and you recognize, you know, how ingrained and how important it's become, you know, to all of us. And, and while, you know, we're, we're all going to certainly be living proof this year that, that we can survive without being able to go to our, to see our favorite bands, um, you know, by the same token, you know, all of a sudden you really recognize you know, which feels like a real loss, right? Now, you know, going to see Dead & Company isn't just going to see Dead & Company. Uh, it's getting to see Bob Weir one more time. You know, he's still healthy and alive. And, and the other guys who are, you know, that are up there playing with him, it's an opportunity to get out there and see all of my buddies who, you know, I may, I may uh, text back and forth with from time to time, but the only time I ever see them is on summer tour when we all go to Wrigley Field and we see Dead & Company. And so you're missing out on that opportunity, right? And, 
you know, a year is a long time to wait to see people again or to do things like that. And, uh, you know, it, it does disrupt the normal flow of life. And, you know, it's nice that all of the, the bands are all putting out an endless number of streams. You can see everything. In fact, I believe there's a stream tonight of a Prince concert from uh, uh, the early uh, mid-1980s. And, you know, and even that has me thinking then, Jim, because, you know, you and I have never really spent any time on our show talking about Prince. And yet I would suggest that, you know, uh, Prince or Derek Trucks, who I'm always supporting, but after Derek Trucks, if he's won, Prince is 1A. He was, you know, talk about a talented guitar player. There's a wonderful clip on YouTube that I always see bouncing around. And it's from a Hall of Fame induction a few years ago. And uh, Prince is up on stage playing with um, Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne of ELO. And um, there's, there's another guitar player. I can't remember who it is. And they're playing while my guitar gently weeps. And they're all taking turns playing lead guitar. And Prince is just sitting there minding his own business until it's his turn at the end. And when it's his turn at the end, immediately you forget about anybody else who's up on stage with him because he takes off and rips out this guitar solo that's just stunning, both in terms of his actual performance and the sound that he has coming out of his guitar. And you realize what an amazingly talented musician this man was, you know, and, you know, other than the fact that he hid part of it behind this elaborate ego and, and stage show and everything else that he put together, but at his core, this man knew how to rock. Yes, I've seen that clip, and it is wonderful. And, uh, of course, such a great classic George Harrison song, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Um, was that post-Beatles? I believe it's on the White Album. Yes. It, uh, is it on the White Album? I think so. Boy, that's embarrassing. I have to go check. Well, well that's a, a pop quiz for our audience to figure out what uh, – was the album that George Harrison's While My Guitar Gently Weeps originally on. Um, well, we don't have much current music yeah, to talk about. We can always talk. Music yeah, it is. It, it is on the White Album. Okay, very good. I, all right. I'm st I've still got it. I'm, I'm, I'm very good at naming that tune. Um, but anyway, let's talk about um, some shows in the past, since we don't have shows in the present. Um <clears throat> Certainly one of my uh, fond memories, and I believe it was the last Grateful Dead show I was ever at before Jerry died, May of 1995, just a few months before Jerry died, in Las Vegas. Uh, Chuck Berry was the opening act, but then he came out at the end, and the encore was round and round, with Chuck Berry on stage, with us. Standing right next to Bob Weir. And, and what I love about Chuck Berry is, first of all, you know, I'm a St. Louis native and he was a St. Louis native and, you know, really brought it all from the Midwest. And here was a guy who may be the single most largest influence ever on rock and roll, bigger than Elvis, bigger than the Beatles, bigger than anybody in terms of the music that he wrote uh, and, and, and what it did and, and the avenues that it opened for other rock musicians and direction that it gave them. To this day, people cover all of his stuff. And everybody knows that Johnny B. Good is a Chuck Berry song, and maybe even everybody knows that Promised Land is a Chuck Berry song. But I don't think everybody knows that Around and Around is a Chuck Berry song. And I think that there's other yeah. songs that get played out there all the time. People just don't even attribute to Chuck Berry, but that's his music and his influence. And uh, um, God, probably 25 years ago at least, maybe even longer, uh, they they filmed a movie in St. Louis called Hail Hail Rock and Roll, 
which is you know purportedly the Chuck Berry story, and they filmed it at the part of it at the Fox Theater in St. Louis, and they sold the event as a concert. And so you, you bought tickets and you went and you sat there. But as we quickly discovered, unlike a real concert, it was a movie, meaning that they would start to play a song, and if the director didn't like the way the song was going, he'd stop and they'd go back and they'd start over and you know he'd try to get whatever effect he was looking for. But they brought in this legendary group of, of musicians to play with him, including Keith Richard, who was playing lead guitar for the whole night. And, you know, anytime he wanted, Keith Richard could turn to the crowd and, and drop a quick Stones riff and everybody would erupt and go crazy. But nobody got the kind of screams that Chuck Berry got that night. And at the end, Keith Richard and all the rest of them were just standing there applauding along with the rest of the crowd, recognizing what a tremendously talented guy he was. Well, that story reminds me of the one and only time I saw Merle Haggard a few years before he passed away. And um, uh-huh. it was Bob Dylan and Merle Haggard on the same bill, and Merle opened for, for Dylan. And a uh, very heavy dead crowd in Denver. And, boy, he, I think Merle Haggard was just shocked at the reception he got. We howled after every song. <laughs> He, he, Merle Haggard does that to people. His his tunes are great, and, and and actually, he's another fantastic example of a musician who I started following because I first heard his music when the Dead covered his tunes, right? And the Dead in uh, the early 1970s were covering "Sing Me Back Home," um, and, and they've covered other stuff that Merle Haggard has written. And uh, yep, and 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 all of a sudden. You know, I'm listening to this guy and I'm listening to his entire library to hear what, you know, what's in his music and what, what was it that, you know, got the dead interested in him and, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. And the dead covers always for me were, were like uh, uh, introductory lessons to the rest of the world of rock and roll. Yes. And uh, I believe the dead did benefits for Merle Haggard when he was in prison. And um, Ronald Reagan was the governor at the time and Reagan... Uh, pardon, pardon him. Yep, the dead were good like that. They would they would help out the people who uh, who paved the way. Um, but that uh, raises uh, you know another interesting topic that you and I have talked about in the past, and I don't know that we're going to really have time to dive into it today. It's certainly something for us to think about uh, for one of our next shows. Uh, it, it's not just the um, uh, you know things like that where people have where the dead have co- covered other people's tunes, but what really has uh, been special for me over the years watching the Grateful Dead are the people who came out to play with the Grateful Dead in concert. You know, whether it was an announced show like you know, the, the Dead and Steve Miller in Las Vegas, and you know, so even though we weren't sure if Steve was going to walk out on stage and play with them, at least we knew he was going to be there. You know, as opposed to other shows like a show that they did in uh, uh, New York City in the spring of 1984, uh, I think it was at Nassau County Coliseum when completely unannounced Stephen Stills walked out one night and played a few songs with them, including one of the best versions of Ico I've ever heard. And, uh, so all sorts of things like this. And I'm sure, you know, in your day, having seen the dead or variations of the dead, you've seen your share of special guests and surprise guests that have come out. But, uh, you know, I thought it might be good for you and I to sit and jot down a few of our, our favorites. And, uh, you know, as long as we have a little bit of time while the rest of the music world has, has kind of slowed down, uh, we can do a deep dive into that. Yes. Yep. I've got many fond memories, and one of them being when Fish got back together in the summer of 2009. They allowed them back into Red Rocks for the first time since 
1995 when they got the, maybe it was 97 they got themselves uninvited just because they got too big for that venue we only hold 9500 and uh, Billy Kreutzman from the dead came in and sat down with the drum set next to Fishman so the whole second set we had two drummers and uh, I encourage our listeners to check out and find if you can from um, 19 the summer of 19 of 2009 uh, the character zero with uh, Billy sitting in with Fishman on drums. I think I just gave you a homework assignment. I, I think you did, and that's okay, because now I've got a homework assignment for you, uh, because this is something else I want to dive into when we have a few more minutes. Um, the last time we were talking about, uh, you know, listening to our own live music when uh, when we have these moments where we miss going and, and seeing uh, all of our favorite bands and everything, and I was commenting on trying to line up shows with the actual nights on the calendar, and uh, we got a, uh, a text or an email uh, from my wife's cousin the other day, who's a big deadhead, who said, oh, were you listening to Barton Hall tonight? And it was uh, May 8th, which, of course, is the anniversary of the Barton Hall show from Cornell College in Ithaca, New York, back in 1977. And certainly the significance of Barton Hall and, uh, and that particular show is that over the years, it's kind of taken on the mantle of being the best Grateful Dead show of all time. And, uh, you know, even even casual deadheads who, you know, have had a little bit of exposure might even be able to tell you that. And uh, I have the disc. It came out in the box set a few years ago. They had a, uh, a May of 77 box set release, and, and this is one of the shows on there. So I've had an opportunity to listen to it a few times. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment, which is to go and find a copy of that show and listen to it, because I want you and I to put our considerable uh, knowledge and experience to, together here and 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 uh, give that show a real uh, exploration and uh, see what we think about it being uh, carrying the title of the best dead show of all time. I will. I'm quite sure I have I that um, those CDs from May of '77, and I haven't listened to them for a while, so I will do that. Um, but as <clears throat> maybe some of our younger listeners uh, may know or may not know, uh, that 1977 is considered one of Jerry's best years. Um, you know, just uh, virtuoso guitar playing, uh, just filling the arenas with single notes, um, just incredible guitar playing, which he always had right up to the end. But uh, if you look at any of the dead bass and surveys, uh, there always seems to be a spike in the um, in the graph under 1977. <laughs> yes, I think that's true. And and this is the you know uh, many people will say the very pinnacle of it. And, uh, you know, the purpose of this is not to otherwise uh, disparage that show, but, you know, to, to really kind of dig down deep and try and find out what it is specifically about that show that make people walk around talking about it as uh, the greatest one they ever played. It's hard to, I'm not a greatest kind of guy. Um, I listen to this box set now from, uh, I've been listening to a lot of uh, Dead during the pandemic out in my barn. And it seems like every show, a lot of it, <clears throat> a lot of the Dead shows, are kind of pedestrian, um, you know, good but not great. But every um, concert that Dead uh, Dead.net puts out has its moments, has its incredible wow moments. Even if you know uh, three quarters of the concert is somewhat pedestrian, it has its moments. For I was listening to one of the 1976 shows from that box set we've got from June of '76. And there's a 20-minute a Rise of the World 
with an incredible bridge. I forget what they came out of, but they just tease the intro to Eyes of the World for the longest time before they break into the lyrics. And I think you know what I'm talking about. I do. Yep. See, what you're touching on is exactly right, because, you know, it, it, and this is, a, I read an article a long, long time ago about why is a, a Grateful Dead concert like going to a baseball game? And it's the same thing, right? You can go to a baseball game, it could be the most boring game, and all of a sudden in the ninth inning with two outs, something exciting happens, and you go home and say, wow, that was the greatest game I ever saw. You know, and if you really broke it down inning by inning, you might not necessarily see it that way. But within the context of what was happening at the time, uh, it could certainly feel that way. And and I can't tell you, you know, the number of dead shows we were at that started flat and then were raging by the end or which started on fire and seemed to kind of peter out towards the end or, you know, which had huge middles and then, you know, kind of came down. And, and for me, when I talk about, you know, a greatest show, I'm talking about one that had that sustained level of, of, you know, uh, excellence or you know, mystical playing or whatever you want to call it, you know, for the better part of an entire set, or maybe they picked it up at the end of the first set and carried it all the way through the second set. Right. And and then you're like, wow, they were, they, they didn't just find one spot in the show where they were hot, but they were hot all night. And, you know, and, and a lot of that is subjective. If, whether you're sitting there in the crowd listening to it or whether you're, you know, in your living room 20 years later, listening to it on a CD. But yeah, that's the beauty of it. Oh, yeah, they'd always seem to, you know, to bring the crowd down a little bit. Um, they'd always bring in a slow ballad towards the end of the second set of Comes a Time or Estella Blue. And even those songs would have their moments of greatness, even though they were slow ballads. Well, it's so funny you say that because my, you know, if somebody were to ask me what was my one biggest consistent problem that I had with the dead, it was they would come out and they would open up with the first song, first set, and not always Jerry, but oftentimes Jerry just raging. One night we went, we saw him at the uh, Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, and they came out and they opened the show with Scarlet Fire, which I had never seen and never even contemplated. And it was, you know, well, obviously it was a great Scarlet Fire, but the, the fact that that's what they chose to open the entire show with, I mean, they had the crowd going delirious. Oh my God, if they're opening with Scarlet Fire, where are we going to go with this show? And as the Scarlet Fire ended and they went into the very, very telltale chords of Little Red Rooster, uh, which is a, a wonderful, you know, old time rock and roll song. And, and if you listen to it and you get towards the end and, and there's some really, really good guitar solo work in that song. But in terms of where they had the crowd level and how it, you could almost just feel the entire air go out of the building, and it was kind of like, is somebody back there paying attention to what song is, you know, you're, you're choosing to play? Because you had everybody up and, and roaring, and now you got people going out to the bathroom. <laughs> well, uh, looks like Rain was always a good bathroom song. You know, actually, that would be another good show topic one day. Let's all list our favorite bathroom songs, right? I mean, Day Job was certainly up there and uh, and a number of them. But, yeah, Box, uh, Looks Like Rain was always one you could walk out on and come back 20 minutes later, and Bobby would still be up there wailing away. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, but I'll squeeze in one more Grateful Dead story um, from Red Rocks. Yeah. Um, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit dark, but it's the truth. There was one year that they played 2 p.m. shows because they were tired of, you know, getting a five, six, seven o'clock rainstorms that we tend to get in Colorado. So one year they played a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 2 p.m. shows, broad daylight. So anybody who had a, speaking of day job, anybody who had a day job was screwed. I was self-employed at the time, so I made it to all three shows. And one of the shows, 
Uh, it's notable in the pictures we ever see it that Jerry has on a red T-shirt instead of a black T-shirt. And so they did come out on stage, and Jerry comes out on stage and puts on his guitar, and he looks up at us, and we look back at him, and he looked up at us, and he takes off his guitar, walks off stage for five or ten minutes, and Bob comes up to the microphone and says, I, I'm sorry, folks, uh, we, we have a little bit of a maintenance problem here. And uh, it's a little bit dark there, but they came back out and broke into a beautiful, solid Mississippi half-step. So that's my last Grateful Dead story for today. Well, that's a great one, too. And Right, you know, you've, even in those moments where things would get a little strange, they could always find a way to kind of adapt and rise to the occasion, and and that's wonderful, too. So, well, that was all great today, Jim. It's always uh, It's always nice to catch up, and... As much as I love our guests on these days where we don't, you know, seems like you and I always have uh, an endless supply of topics to talk about, which is what makes cannabis and the Grateful Dead so great in the first place. Very good. I'll sign off here for the Deadhead Cannabis Show uh, from Longmont, Colorado. Larry, take us home. Thank you. And once again, everyone, thank you for listening. Stay healthy, stay safe, and listen to the Grateful Dead. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.